0: In Collective Conversations today, it's my honour to introduce Steve Murphy. Steve, I've been wanting to get you on the program for such a long time because, uh, you know, as far as experts go in um, crisis management and risk management um, and communication, I just love listening to your analogies and your experience. At the moment, um, you know, I'd like to look at reputational risk today Mm. and uh, where that fits in the corporate sphere at the moment.
1: Reputational risk is at the top of the tree uh, in respect to the things that organisations are considering and should be considering, and and that has come into sharp focus as a consequence of the Hain Royal Commission um, into the banking and financial services sector more broadly, and and really uh, reputational risk today, as we see it, is benchmarked in the context of community expectation, um, not what um, an organisation might expect of itself not what um, an organisation might uh, perceive to be um, its raison d'etre, not what an organisation might perceive to be um, as uh, its culture, but it's how the outside sees a particular organisation, and it's what they're calling today um, having the skills for an outside-in view um, of what we do, irrespective of who we might be.
0: So how does that work within a company to take that outside in view, you know there's some honest questions that have to be asked there.
1: Yes there are and I think that's the role of um, consultants primarily Um, and and it's not just um, small boutique consultancies but certainly you know larger firms might be KPMG, it might be Deloitte, um, it might be Ernst & Young who have broadened out their offering into a whole range of areas in terms of consultancy Um, and, and It is uh, beneficial to have outsiders um, inside um, an organisation for periods of time because they can take a more critical view um, of what's going on. They can take a more critical view um, of people and process. They can take a more critical view um, of culture programs, um, diversity, uh, human resources because at the end of the day... Um, they don't have to deal with the internal politics, and it is recognizing that every organisation, no matter what it is, and no matter how good it is, um, they all have internal politics, and and that tends to sometimes cloud judgment, and it also tends to heighten the level of self-interest.
0: So let's go through a company that you were working with, the Seven mm. Eleven. Mm. Um, you know, reputational risk, the disaster when they are underpaying so many staff members. So. Take us through the different steps of how that played out.
1: 7 Eleven was a very challenging um, exercise going back um, a couple of years. I should say, at this point, to to make advances and to make improvements and to make change, you need strong leadership. You can come up with the best strategies, you can come up with the best plans, but unless you have strength of leadership to have those things approved and implemented, then you don't go very far. And in the case of 7 Eleven, Um, They were very fortunate to have a very strong leader, Michael Smith, the chairman of the company whom I worked closely with for a couple of years and Michael uh, was adamant uh, that the organisation was going to be open um, and transparent um, and honest uh, and frank and forthright, not with just those outside the organisation but with everybody inside the organisation in dealing with the problems that they had. Their problem simply put was that franchisees uh, were underpaying their staff. These were not staff that were directly employed by the corporate entity 7-Eleven. They were employed by franchisees, which legally meant that 7-Eleven was not responsible for it. So the first question becomes, well, do we we take a legal path and say, well, no, actually, this is not our legal responsibility, so therefore um, it is up to the franchisees, the employers of these staff, to rectify the problems that have emerged? Or do we view it more broadly and say, well, if it happens in our name, 7-Eleven, irrespective of whether we are legally responsible, then we're accountable for it. And that was the strength of leadership that was shown by Michael Smith uh, to say, well, no, these things have happened in our name and we should take degrees of accountability Uh, for the things that have occurred Uh, and we proceeded on that basis right so what Michael was effectively saying is that reputation is as important to us as our legal obligations are in respect to this matter and I think that was the right way to proceed.
0: Which is interesting because talking about reputation and risk it is a huge cost but you know going back Mm. How do you put a figure on um, reputational risk because, or risk itself, because in its very term it was never considered a value.
1: No, that's right. Risk was always um, always sat within the purviews of chief financial officers and, and they would make um, assessments about financial risk to a business. Uh, so what's the financial risk of merging with Entity C? What's the financial risk of uh, taking over entity A. Uh, What is the financial risk of doing a spill and fill of key uh, personnel across the organisation? I mean, all of those sorts of things, but um, it was very rare uh, for an organisation to put a dollar value um, on reputational risk because it is a very hard thing uh, to actually value. People are now saying and seeing that as a consequence, again of the Hayne Royal Commission into um, uh, the banking sector and the financial services sector, uh, the challenges that were confronted and successfully dealt with um, by Seven Eleven—that yes, there is um, a a cost uh, to not managing reputational risk. Now, that might well be, com- might well be in the form of um, customers taking their business um, elsewhere. It might well be in this day and age of social media where you have activists um, encouraging investors not to invest um, in a particular organisation, uh, which then might diminish shareholder value. So yes, there is a real cost potentially um, to not adequately and properly dealing with reputational risk.
0: Now, you spoke about strong leadership, too, is very important. And let's go back to the 7-Eleven when you said, yes, the strong leadership decided that it was in their name. Yep. But you said that it was the franchisees. So we've got all these layers then that we have to communicate with and get that message across and bring them on board. How does that happen?
1: Well, this is when you have to do away with the command and control concept that uh, here, is, here is the message, here is the position, um, and everybody will abide by it. Um, that kind of process doesn't work very well anymore. Um, people like to be involved, uh, people like to have skin in the game. Um, and if you want advocates for change, if you want advocates for resolution, You're more likely to get them if you give them skin in the game by involving them in the development of the strategy, by involving them in the development of the messaging, by involving them in uh, the development of reputational positioning because they have buy-in and they see it then as uh, part of their raison d'etre, they see it um, as part of their professional standing to see this program through or to see a strategy through or to see a plan through. Um, And and, and I think that is the most effective way these days, uh, to be able to uh, meet those challenges, meet the risks, uh, put in mitigation plans, take advantage of opportunities um, as well. It's not just about risk.
0: And before we came on, uh, you talked about the integrity of the message. So that sort of slides into what you were talking about. Explain that a bit more as the integrity of that message that people need to get on board.
1: The integrity of the message, and by that um, I really mean that it's – The antithesis of what we used to call in the 80s and 90s spin when everybody who was involved in communications was um, variously referred to as spin doctors and not in a positive way Um, and community expectation has moved on a lot um, in the last decade particularly Um, and you can't fool people all of the time Um, and Australians particularly um, are very good at smelling something that's not quite right Um, and they can smell it a long way off Um, and these days they have plenty of opportunity uh, to be able to expose it, uh, to debate it, to criticise it, to talk about it, to advocate against it. Um, It's this small thing called the internet of things um, and social media and you just can't afford um, to ignore all of that and you can't afford to not be engaged in it which, which is why the integrity of the message becomes so, so important. Is it true? Is it believable? What's its impact? Why are you doing it? All of those things. And your message has to encapsulate and or answer those things to be effective and have a degree of integrity.
0: And that mass audience has to understand it?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. So how did it work with the Seven Eleven then? How did you get that mass audience to come on board, I suppose, the franchisees, but then the customers to understand it?
1: One of, one of the things uh, when you're in a crisis such as that, is to determine what's possible at the very beginning. And when you're in the midst of a crisis, the reality of messaging and the reality of reputational positioning is that you can't do very much until you get to a point where you have a plan to remediate uh, the things that have gone wrong, to reform and then to rehabilitate. So we adopted what I referred to as the three hours process. Remediation was to set right in dollar terms what had been wronged uh, to individuals um, across the franchisee network. Reform was to make sure that systems, processes, structure and people were in the right place at the right time, at the right price, doing the right thing. And reform answers the question, um, what are you doing to make sure this will never, ever, ever happen again? Right. If I had a dollar for every time a journalist um, asked that question, I'd probably be on a beach in the Bahamas <laughs> right now. Uh, but that's what the reform piece does. It's only after you have progressed through those two R's, remediation and reform, that you're in a position to rehabilitate um, in terms of reputation because at that point you're not saying to people, take us at our word. You're not saying to people, we just want you to believe it because we've said it. All we're asking you to do is make a judgement on the things that we have done. That's the integrity piece about the message, that's about making it real, that's about showing that you are committed to the course of action um, that you have undertaken. It also shows that you are committed to ensuring that your organisation and your people um, are focused on doing the right thing, not just making money. And there's nothing wrong with making money. You're responsible to your shareholders, you're there to sell product, you're there to make money, you're there to make a profit. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. So they're not mutually exclusive, you just have to be sure that you're going about it in the right way.
0: Now. You spoke about the word crisis, so we use that similar to risk. Take us through the different steps of a crisis when you know it suddenly hits. Mm. You're called in. What, um, what action do you take?
1: The first thing is to get to the truth. Don't assume anything. Initially, you will get a version of events. And that's not to say that people are misleading or deliberately trying to mislead you. Um, they're not. Generally the reason a crisis develops is as a consequence of a lack of corporate knowledge. So people haven't actually understood or been aware of or known about the things that have been occurring within their organisation. So at first they might have a very filtered view um, of what they think's occurred. So the first step um, is to hear the first version of events and then question absolutely everything and question absolutely everyone Um, who's had a fingerprint uh, on, around or near uh, the cause of the crisis because you need to determine where the fences are. So what's the field we're playing on? What are the things that have gone wrong? Who has been involved? Um, How long has this been going on? Um, Who knew? Were there um, undertakings or actions that in hindsight uh, might be viewed as obfuscation? Um, Is it, have people told the truth? Have people lied by omission? These are all very hard and difficult questions uh, to have to ask. Um, But when you're called in from the outside, it is much easier uh, to ask them because you are not asking them of your professional colleagues. You are not asking them um, of people to whom you might report. Um, You're not asking them um, of people that might report to you. It's really about um, getting to the truth it comes back to again the fact and then the integrity of the message
0: it's interesting while you're getting to the truth though you've got perhaps the media looming mm. on the outside mm. and you know going like a roller coaster yeah. so how do you manage the media and keeping them informed while you're still trying to find out what's going on
1: I think it's I think there's there's a couple of pieces to that one is to manage expectations internally in a crisis because everybody metaphorically wants to go out and metaphorically throw a punch, right? Now, it doesn't really matter whether it hits or what happens, they just feel better for having thrown it um, because they've engaged, right? Um, That doesn't achieve very much. The reality is that in that very early stage, in managing expectations internally is to say, you know what, in all honesty, there's not a lot we can do to actually stop or slow the media train. Uh, because yes, they're getting a whole range of information from say disgruntled employees or whistleblowers or whomever um, it might be. Internally, an organisation might not be in a position to be able to counter any of those things, irrespective of whether they're true or not. So. You have to simply um, recognise the fact that in the early stages of crisis, those things are going to have a life of their own. It's what you do uh, to be able to put some building blocks into place to build an argument a little further down the track. Right? So you, you actually are dealing in facts. Um, if you wade into it too early, you make a number of assumptions and they are proven then to be wrong, then your media coverage will be significantly worse um, and it will be significantly worse for significantly longer.
0: 72 hours is normally the number or the figure I hear yeah. when a crisis breaks that you can more or less say to your client, look, 72 hours, it's going to be a rough ride. Mm. Is that, do you believe in that? Or? No. <laughs> I've, I've,
1: no, I, I've, I've never believed in the 72 hours because, look, as, as a baseline or a benchmark, um, and if that you know, provides some degree of positive hope, you know, for for an organisation or for your client, then, you know, yes, I guess, you know, good luck to you. Uh, But I have never imposed a a timeline, um, certainly not 72 hours, certainly not 24 or 36 or 48, um, for the simple reason that um, digging into uh, the cause of a crisis, digging into the issues that underpin a crisis, digging into um, the problems that sit there actually take time. And for the sake of for the sake of you know issuing a media release or putting some poor fellow or some poor individual um, out in front of the media to be mauled just for the sake of sating the media's appetite is somewhat counterproductive in the short term. But it's what, hard to do, but it's counterproductive.
0: But what if you don't say anything?
1: Oh, I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a matter of uh, shutting up shop um, and not engaging at all. Um, I think it is a case of being very cautious. Um, It's a case of saying, this is what we know to now. We are doing an enormous amount um, of investigation and work uh, to uncover the facts behind what's occurred Um, and when we are in a position uh, to make uh, sound statements based on good knowledge, based on good intelligence, uh, then you know we'll be continuing to advise our shareholders, we'll be continuing to inform our staff and yes we will be you know engaging with the media as and when we can and as is appropriate and you know that then draws all of the usual questions which you're not in a position to answer um, and you simply can't answer them and you go back and you keep restating your case as you know it to that point. Um, does it satisfy the media? No, it doesn't um, but nothing would. Um, in the early stages of a crisis. That's the simple fact.
0: Now, um, Steve, you've had plenty of experiences in crisis and he said, she said, and mm. reading things in the media that mm. have uh, been fact or fiction through... Let's go back now to the Kennett years yeah. <laughs> because mm. we can't not have you in and not talk about that, the Kennett revolution. You were part of that. Take us through when you first joined and um, some of the highlights along that road.
1: Oh, gee. Um, I first started... Uh, when the former premier regained the Liberal leadership from Alan Brown in 1991, so we had a year and a bit um, in opposition before uh, we got to government. And 1992, of course, was uh, seen as the unlosable election that um, uh, you know Kennett would win um, in a hand canter because you know the Labor, the Labor government was was terrible, and it was terrible because there was a joke going around at the time under Joan Kerner's premiership. Uh, which was, uh, what's the capital of Victoria? Um, and the answer was a $1.10 um, because the place was broke. Uh, we had $30 billion of debt and $30 billion in 1992 was a huge chunk of change. It is today, but you think about it back then, it's an enormous amount of money. So we had state debt running at about $30 billion. Uh, we had uh, budget deficits of between $1 to $2.2 billion. Um, out over the forecast so-called forecast out years, which would have been 92 three, 93, four, 94,5. Um, so there was an enormous, an enormous challenge um, in front of us. And the view always was that we would only get one term uh, because of the things that would have to be done would make us terribly unpopular. and we'd probably lose the 1996 election. Um, and we operated for four years. Um, in the belief that we wouldn't be re-elected in 1996,
0: so how did you and um, Jeff Kennett manage the media during that time to get your message mm. out? <laughs>
1: I'm not sure that I'm not sure that I so much managed the media um, as I went along with the ride for him, with him, or along for the ride uh, with him. Jeff is an extraordinary human being, um, and I know people. Listening will say, well, of course, you would say that, wouldn't you? He was a great campaigner. Um, He was a great media performer. Um, He knew how to pique the interest of an audience. He knew how to deliver specific messages for shock and awe value to get attention, um, to have people then start debating an issue. And he was one simply for engagement. Um, No matter where, no matter what, there wasn't a day I don't think in the first four years um, that we didn't go out and do um, a doorstop, a media conference, um, a breakfast presentation, a lunch presentation, a dinner presentation, we would even, even on a Sunday, uh, we'd go down to a park near his home and do a media call. On Sunday afternoon, because he was always there. He figured the best way to do it was, I'm I'm going to dominate the agenda. I'm going to keep talking about the things that I want to keep talking about. And I'm not going to allow anybody else um, to uh, distract me or distract the government um, or distract uh, the voters from the things that we're doing and things we're going to do. And I'll argue for them, which is what he did.
0: Now, when we were talking about risk earlier on, you said it required strong leadership. Yeah. Does that still apply in politics as it does in business? Are oh, you-
1: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. More, more so, more so than ever, um, I think.
0: So, Jeff With- Kennett was a strong leader oh, that allowed. Yeah.
1: Look, and I think I think there's there's a difference. There is a perception. There is a perception that he was a bully. And I spent nine years with him. Um, And he used to always jokingly say to me, mate, you do realise that you and I spend more time together than we do with our respective spouses, Uh, which was true at the time. But he loved debate. And he loved for me um, and others, particularly members of his cabinet, um, to get up his grill um, and have a debate over proposed legislation, have um, debate over things that were going to cabinet. And he loved fierce debate. He initiated fierce debate. He respected fierce debate, but when it was all said and done, you've had the debate, um, and if you lose the debate or the debate doesn't go your way, you put the uniform on, you salute the skipper, um, and you get on uh, with the selling of what has been agreed because majority rules. And that, for me, is in one sense strong leadership. Um, Having the courage, the confidence, the ability and the capability uh, to encourage people to be as open and as transparent and as vociferous um, as they could possibly be. No acrimony, no payback, but here's an issue or here's a challenge or here's an opportunity. How do we prosecute it? How do we overcome it? Um, What's the impact? What's the outcome going to be? Who benefits? Line all of those things up. Um, And then we're going to go out and argue for it. That, for me, is strong leadership.
0: And it applies just today. Absolutely. In business or anywhere, really. Yeah, of course.
1: And and, and even, I think, more so in business today, uh, in one respect, because the audience that businesses um, are now pitching to are as broad as the audience's politicians have been pitching to for years, right? Uh, And that's... As a consequence of activists, it's as a consequence of um, social media um, and, and all sorts of things. Uh, in, you know, once upon a time, corporates would worry about four things: the annual general meeting, the half-year results, the full year results and Investor Day. And all the rest of it was just white noise. So who you're talking to? You're talking to your investors um, and you're talking to your shareholders. Now, um, you're talking to everybody because everybody's going to have a view about your organisation, about how you operate, about um, what you do and how you do it. Um, you know, look at, look at the activists in respect to putting pressure on um, organisations, uh, banks and other investors uh, not to put money um, into the coal industry. Now, whether you agree with that or not is not the point in one sense. It just simply shows you that the breadth of audience that organisations have to deal with goes way, way, way beyond your simple shareholder base, which is what it, what it used to be. And to be able to do that requires a broader view of the world. It requires an understanding of what community expectation is. Um, and it requires uh, leaders in organisations to uh, be strong enough uh, to take account of community expectation. That's not to say that you agree with uh, every expectation that's put forward by community, but it is to say that you need to recognise it and be prepared to argue for and again your position um, as it might relate to it.
0: So, Steve, in the C-suite, it shouldn't just be the bean counters and uh, you know the monetary value. It has to be all about what the reputational risk is going to be to a company, and they should be coming along right at the start of the journey.
1: Absolutely, um, there is no question of that, um, and organisations. Um, are shifting toward ensuring that they have um, a corporate affairs, uh, corporate affairs slash communications professional that sits um, at executive level um, that can provide advice um, around uh, reputation, that can provide advice around positioning, as it must align uh, to a business, to a business strategy, um, and to business outcome. It's not to say that that advice will change a business strategy. It's not to say that that advice should or would necessarily change um, a commercial uh, decision or the outcome of a commercial decision, but it is to say that those particular individuals involved in communications, involved in corporate affairs, involved in government relations and all of those things, in my view, should be integrated in one form or another. Um, It is to say that uh, the person responsible for, for providing that advice will raise a number of red flags that would say, look, okay, commercially, this decision makes sense, but from a community expectation position, these are the two, three or four uh, likely opposition arguments that are going to be thrown into the public domain over this decision. Have we considered that? um, And have we considered how we're going to deal with those things? So in one sense, it's risk identification, um, it's risk mitigation. It doesn't necessarily mean um, that the advice given is going to change a decision that's been taken.
0: And how often should a company review the risk reputation as part of its strategy?
1: Ah oh, ongoing. I think it's I don't think you can create um, a set and forget program with these things because we see how we see how things change so very quickly. Um, you know people talk about the twenty four seven news cycle um, in that sense. well, I don't even think there's a cycle anymore. It is just, a a rolling tsunami of um, information, um, advocacy, um, activism, uh, and so on, right? Um, And and I think you have to be aware of it um, and cognizant of it um, every day um, in all of the things that you do, because things change so quickly and issues arise so very, very quickly. And that says, well, okay, um, are we structured to deal with that? Um, Do we have – the personnel within our corporate affairs, government relations, communications functions uh, that have broad spectrum um, experience, not just a particular experience in um, a nominated industry, but um, have they worked in politics? Have they worked um, in the media? Have they worked uh, in uh, consultancy? Because it gives you a breadth and depth of experience that you might not necessarily have um, internally, and that helps your outside in view of the world.
0: Now we diverted off because we were we were talking about the Kennett years and uh, how '96 was. Uh, you know, you went into government mm. thinking you'd only be there for four years, mm. and you had to make the tough decisions then. Yep. you succeeded. So, what else happened after that?
1: Well, we won. Obviously, uh, nineteen ninety six. At that time, we won the second largest majority. Um, in Victoria's history, which was an enormous endorsement um, of what the Kennett government had done um, in its first term. And I think part of that was because people were starting to see the results. They might not necessarily have liked Geoffrey as Premier, uh, but they respected him. They respected him for his strength of character. They respected him and the government for its purpose. Um, and, And very much part of that was that if... The Premier said the government was going to do something. There wasn't anybody in Victoria um, who didn't believe that's what the government was going to do.
0: Integrity of message. Integrity
1: of message. I think that's very much the reason why we won and we won in the fashion that we did um, in 1996, which then enabled us to you know, start to do a whole range of other things, as opposed, other positive things, um, as opposed to... Um, the, as people described it, the slashing and burning um, of the four years between 1992 and 1996. Um, and, and the second term was probably harder in one sense because expectation levels were higher. Uh, people had got to the point where they were, were becoming reform-weary um, and they were wanting to see um, the benefits of their sacrifice um, in the years from 92 to, to 96. So, you know, we, we, we had developed a whole range of things you know, such as the Community Support Fund, um, which was related to, you know, Crown Casino and gambling um, and gaming, create a fund, um, a specially dedicated, uh, hypothecated fund uh, for monies to go into um, local playgrounds, local community infrastructure, you know, all of those sorts of things so people could see that, yeah, there there is a payoff. It might only be um, $60,000 worth of play equipment um, in a local park, but to that local community, $60,000 $60,000 worth of play equipment um, is a big chunk of change um, and it's a good decision. Um, it doesn't necessarily always have to be about um, you know, $2 billion city links or whatever the case may be. We did those too. but you know.
0: We've got to talk about 99. Yeah, briefly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How did you
1: feel on election night? Initially positive on election night in 99. We always knew, and this might come as a surprise. Uh, But we always knew uh, that 1999 was going to be a very close election. We believed at the time that it might be three or four seat majority to the government, so we would lose a number um, of colleagues in the Legislative Assembly, uh, but we believed that we would get back just. As it turned out, we didn't. um, And had, I think, something like 1,000 votes gone the other way, uh, then we would have got back uh, with a two or three or, or four seat majority. In part, it was as a consequence of a protest vote. People wanted Jeff Kennett to continue as premier. I've got no doubt about that, as I remember back to the focus groups and all sorts of other uh, polling and research that we were doing. But the one key thing there was always a butt to it when they. When voters were asked the question back in those days um, if you woke up on Sunday morning after the next state election, um, would you like to see Jeff Kennett as Premier? Um, and almost to a person, people said yes. And almost to a person, they said, but we want to cut him down a peg or two. We think he's just a bit too arrogant. We think he's just gotten a bit too full of himself. Um, and we want to give him a clip under the ear Um, and because our majority was so big again context second largest majority in Victorian history people felt comfortable enough to say well yeah I can change my vote but it won't change the government now that's not the whole reason um, and I would never suggest that that is the whole reason there were many things I think that or a number of things that occurred uh, between 1996 and 1999 um, that uh, offended people um, and that the government either shouldn't have done um, or should have done differently, Um, that also played a part um, in the government's defeat um, in 1999. Um, Quick example, there was a thing that we had a discussion about, I think, in 1997, um, and it was about trying to uh, return to Victorians uh, the benefits of their sacrifice through a thing that uh, I had called the social dividend. And that was about trying to create a program uh, whereby we would have additional funding going into um, what they now called early childhood education, um, primary school, um, health and welfare, um, aged care. So you're getting to more social issues, which is not what the government's reputation was built on. Uh, But we saw that as something that we needed to improve. Um, and we started to talk about the social dividend. We raised expectations in respect to the social dividend, and then it wasn't delivered on to the extent that it should have been delivered on for a whole range of reasons and a whole range of discussions that occurred that had occurred um, at the Cabinet level, which I couldn't reveal. Um, and, and I think when you create an expectation and against the backdrop that the government had always done what it said it was going to do, then we created... Um, a rod for our own backs in that circumstance. And I think that's one of the things that ultimately people uh, were disappointed in the government over and contributed to the loss in 99. Mm,
0: so that's that integrity again.
1: Again, yeah, yeah. absolutely. The integrity in the, me- uh, the message, managing um, expectation, being sure that your credibility, uh, when it's based on doing the things that you say that you are going to do against all of that backdrop, then uh, we probably should have seen uh, the warning signs about not pursuing it as hard as we had expected to when we originally thought about it.
0: Now, the other thing you mentioned then was the but, the but factor. They wanted to see something happen, (laughs) but... So knowing that, what is it in business then when you're consulting to business people? What's that but factor that um, you might say? Um, That's a good
1: question. Um, I, I, I think... A lot of it comes back to where the questions sit in respect to the organisation and and the leader. Um, if you have a high profile chief executive officer um, or a high profile chief financial officer, um, it becomes a very different equation if you're consulting to an organisation that that doesn't. So, uh, you know, th- th- there's a lot of there's a lot of variables
0: because. With the Seven Eleven example, it was strong leadership. You said there; it would yeah. have been perhaps very different if that leadership wasn't strong.
1: Oh, it, it, it would have been it would have been very different um, had because the pressure, the pressure that chief executive officers or managing directors um, are under, uh, normally, you know, business as usual, much less in a in a crisis situation, is just extraordinary. I mean, it is absolutely extraordinary. They have to think about the potential destruction of shareholder value. They have to think about uh, the potential for class actions being launched. They have to think about uh, the prospect of uh, legal responsibility and what that means. Uh, They have to think about the prospect of being hauled before um, a Senate inquiry or a Royal Commission. and then being cognizant of what you can and can't say um, in respect to, you know, your listing rules, your regulatory obligations. I mean, there are so many pieces um, that come to the fore um, in all of that, that if you don't have a leader uh, who is clear of thought, clear on vision, and has the strength to stick to it, because then you're done for. And I say that because why is that hard? People will say, well, that's what they should do. That's why they get paid the big bucks. Yeah, sure, absolutely. But they generally don't make these decisions in isolation. Um, And then, you know, come out of the cupboard and say, well, hello, this is what we're going to do. They receive advice from a whole range of people. And when you're getting advice, you will get a range of advice. And there will always be a lot of naysayers. There will always be some who will argue that you should be taking the path of least resistance. Um, there will be others who will suggest, um, no, we stick, to, we, we, we stick to the road that's defined by um, our friends in the legal fraternity and everything else doesn't matter. We won't worry about reputation because we know we can win um, in court. Well, yeah, that's true. You might win in court. But if you lose the battle in the court of public opinion, then, as I said before, the potential these days is that there is likely to be shareholder value destruction. There is likely to be uh, reputational impact from activists, or customers, or suppliers. Even when you think about um, you think about integrity of the supply chain, there's that word again. Um, if you're supplying to an organisation, um, then you don't want your reputation sullied by something that the organisation to which you are supplying has done. Right? So you have to think of all of those things, and and that requires, as I said. Um, you know, very strong leadership in the face of all of the things that will be thrown at them in those circumstances.
0: Steve, we've covered so much, and there's still so much more that I'd love to ask you about. Now, um, for people listening and uh, they want to find out a bit more, or even um, you know, come to you for some advice <laughs> and consultancy, where can they find you?
1: Oh well, they can. Uh, people can find me. Good old LinkedIn. You see, I, yes. I have I have come to I have come to the point of um, utilising social media in all sorts of platforms. Um, but they can find me on uh, find me on LinkedIn. Just um, or on the Google machine. Google my name. Um, I think there's a, a US politician that will come up first uh, by the same name. That's not me.
0: And uh, Steve, of course, that opens up something else about social media, but we'll have to keep that till next time because I'd love your thoughts on uh, how the social media landscape has changed uh, in this area and activists, oh, which I, I think's changed a lot too.
1: Absolutely. I'd look forward to doing it. And I, um, I appreciate the invitation to come in and talk.
0: Thanks, Steve.